Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Medical training is long, full of sacrifices, and a student debt for many. For our listeners, after graduating for pre-med or undergrad studies, future physicians go into medical school with usually four years, followed by three years of internal medicine residency or five years of surgery or radiation oncology residency. For those internal medicine residents, they have to complete three years of hematology an oncology fellowship or only oncology. For surgery residents, they may complete additional training to specialize in thoracic or other types of oncologic surgeries. Some people, we do additional years to sub-specialize, for example, in thoracic medical oncology. After all those years of training and seeing your 20s go by, the time comes when you need to find your first real job. Residency and fellowship are pay opportunities, but they're not considered to be your end game when you're finishing all this training. This applies to all physicians and also PhD scientists when they finish their postdoc. Career transitions are normal in academic oncology, oncology practice, and industry. We have seen people switch institutions, including myself during the pandemic, and leave academic oncology to industry. Today, we'll be discussing how to find or transition to that new job. We're going to be talking about thoracic oncology, but this can apply to any hematology oncology fellow. It is my pleasure to introduce our three guests today. First, we have Dr. Mark Awad, Clinical Director of the Thoracic Oncology Group at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, and a leader researcher in KRAS mutant no small cell lung cancer. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Nice to talk with you, NJ. Thank you. We also have Dr. Ana Velasquez, instructor of medicine in thoracic medical oncologist at UCSF and a postdoctoral fellow at the National Clinical Scholars Program. Dr. Velasquez is completing her training and she's doing real time search for her first faculty position. Welcome, Dr. Velasquez. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here, NJ. I'm excited to share about my experience. Finally, there's somebody that I have admired since I'm resident is Dr. Jyoti Patel, the Associate Vice Chair of Clinical Research at Thoracic Medical Oncologist, a professor of medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. Dr. Patel is a leader in thoracic oncology she focuses her efforts in development and evaluation of novel markers and drugs for patients with no small cell lung cancer. Welcome, Dr. Patel. Thank you, NJ. I so appreciate this opportunity to talk about these issues with friends. And so thanks so much for the time. So in the introduction, I cover, you know, the process of finding this job, mostly all these years of training. 
Some of the aspects that we discuss will include not only finding the job, but what happens after, how do you negotiate? Things has changed over time. Even in my short time as faculty, my two recruitment processes significantly vary. One of the reasons was because I, last time I got recruited was in the middle of a pandemic. Mark, how was the recruiting process for you when you were looking for your first job out of training? Thanks so much, Angie. You know, I, I think it's such an exciting time looking for your first job. You know, as you highlighted, training takes so long in medicine between medical school, residency, fellowship, research, et cetera. And so it's really such an exciting time to think about that transition from being a fellow, being a trainee, and getting your first uh, job on faculty and taking that leap towards greater independence and being able to mentor trainees uh, yourself as a faculty member. But with that excitement, it is also a little bit of you know, anxiety-inducing process at times. You know, Prior to this point, it's a fairly clear process for how do you apply to medical school? How do you apply to residency? There's a specific deadline. There's a time. There's an application process. And there are a certain number of slots every single year that you know, people are graduating, new people are coming in. So there's kind of a natural influx of new trainees every step of the way. I think for finding your first faculty position or finding your first job, it's a much more nebulous process. And that's what I also experienced when I was finishing up training and starting to look for a faculty position. There's not a clear you know, application sort of form to fill out. There's not a specific time frame that all institutions participate in similar to you know a, a match process for residency or fellowship so it's kind of a, a gray zone you, you don't exactly know how to apply or what to do um, who to talk to who to reach out to and you know this is one of the kind of tight bottlenecks also for us when we're making this transition and that's also you know something that I was thinking about when I was looking for my first faculty job Sometimes the exact position that you're looking for in the exact geographical area that you're looking for, you know, there just might not be spaces or slots at that institution. So if you wanted to be, you know, a sarcoma physician in Philadelphia and an oncologist there, they may have hired folks for those positions, you know, the preceding year and just they don't have the space or the patient volume to support hiring for a new person with the next cycle. So that's where it is quite challenging to sort of sometimes have your heart set on a place or a, a certain field and then have to kind of change your expectations accordingly. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes people have a geographic preference. They want to stay a certain location and um, that might mean switching subspecialty fields. So, you know, instead of being a thoracic oncologist, maybe a gastro intestinal oncologist or switching fields or switching cities or locations. So it is a challenging process. You know, I think there are a lot of topics that I think we'll touch on during this uh, session about, you know, how do you negotiate? How do you think about salary? How do you kind of understand what resources are available? And again, because this is the first time where you can start asking these questions very carefully and, and, and trying to compare different institutions or different offers to one another. So it's an exciting time, but it is a bit nebulous. So I'll be uh, curious to hear what other people feel also. Thank you for sharing that with us, Mark. It is quite, you know, we are used to structure 
since the beginning, the time for medical school application, everything has a structure. But when you're finding your first faculty job, it's like, here, learn how to swim without structure. It can be quite overwhelming. So Jyoti, can you share with us a little bit how was finding your first job? The comments both of you made really hit the nail on the head, right? For so long, we are structured. We're sort of told how to work, when to show up, and where to be for three years. And then you finish your fellowship, and so much in our lives happens at one time. It's really, this is the time when people start thinking about where they want to live for a long time, not just sort of a three-year stint. And so I think there are a lot of emotions that sort of go into finding your job, sort of where you are. My story was one that I think many people probably relate to. It was a very difficult time for me. I had gone... I'd gotten married in residency and left my husband in Chicago to go to New York to pursue fellowship. And he had an additional one more year behind me. And I had a wonderful, wonderful experience in fellowship. Dr. Mark Chris, Dr. Valerie Roosh, really just generous, thoughtful mentors really helped me develop a fellowship experience that was fantastic. My husband joined me in New York, 9-11 happened, then he went to fellowship in Germany, and then he came back, and then he did fellowship in Baltimore, and you know we were sort of traveling between cities when it wasn't so easy to FaceTime each other. And so certainly, you know, we were managing our training and really thinking about putting our career sort of at our career trajectories at the forefront. And we both, I think, had wonderful fellowship experiences. And then when it came down to getting jobs, we're like, we should actually plan to live in the same city. So finding two academic jobs that would really be satisfying and fulfilling, you know, to start at the exact same time is not as easy as it looks. Certainly, I um, loved Memorial and it was clear what my trajectory there would look like. My husband didn't have such a wonderful job offer in New York. And so we sort of started looking around the country at different cities that we could both really succeed in. At the end of the day, sort of after a year of a lot of visits with people, a lot of wonderful visits with people, we decided that maybe we should come back to Chicago. And, you know, that piece of reaching out to people that I knew from different times in my lives, relying on mentors to make connections for me, to meet people at ASCO, World Lung. And certainly those meetings were in person. It was a lot easier then to really find out what opportunities opened up. But it was clear, as Mark said, that the perfect job and the perfect place and the perfect time often don't happen. And so it may be that you make some sacrifices. But those sacrifices often can end up being huge opportunities. And, you know, it's coming back to Chicago. I came closer to my family, but I also had an opportunity to really develop a position and a program in the way I wanted. And so that can be overwhelming to think about, you know, coming straight out of fellowship. But again, keeping in contact with the people that care about your success and really looking to them for advice, I think gives you a lot of opportunities and can really help you be successful in the future. Thank you, Jati, for bringing that up because there's also 
you know, we don't move as individuals. Many people move with families, kids, spouses, parents. So the decision is not only what is the best job, but what is the best job for the people in my house, right? So Anna, you are doing life <laughs> search for your first faculty position. How is the experience going? And where are some of the websites or resources that the fellows are using to try to find opportunities for these current year and probably future years to come? I think that everything that has been said so far really has resonated a lot. I think everybody, you know, has talked both Mark and Yoti about their own experiences, but those still are, are similar to mine currently. You know, the process is really long. It's months and months and months. And we, I think, in, have always had such structure with clear deadlines and timelines and when is the match and you make, you know, a rank list and then it's up to faith that there is so much uncertainty and things that are unknown that can really drag along the process and create a lot of anxiety. I think that for me, something that I did not realize going into this initially is that doing a national search for a job, if you're not limited necessarily in location, it's really a full-time job trying to send tons of emails, connect with people, meet across time zones. And, you know, now in the COVID era, Zoom has made that feasible and more easy, but it's quite, I think, hard and burdensome in terms of the amount of work that goes both for institutions that are potentially hiring in and for us as, as trainees. I think for me, the process really has been enlightening in trying to understand you get to really know yourself and what your priorities are and your family. What are you really looking for a job? And at the same time, what are you looking for that would make your life outside of your job be the best that it can be? I think we always in, in residency and fellowship, you have deadlines and goals and this commitment that seems more long-term really to me, at least, is guided by value and what I am seeking that will bring me joy in the academic environment, in the work that I'm doing, but also in my personal life. And it's the first time that you'd really get to think about that and make a list of what are things that are the most important to you. Which ones are you willing to sacrifice? Where do you want to live and what comes into play for it? In terms of you asked about websites and for the fellows most people would look at the New England Journal of Medicine. ASCO has another website. ISLC has one. ASH really depends on specifically your focus. I would say, though, that those do not have most academic openings or jobs. As Mark mentioned, the process is very nebulous. So I would definitely rely on mentors and ask for help constantly to email people or blankly, just blindly email yourself and send repeat emails if you're really interested in a specific institution or location. And then the other part is it really depends also on what your goals are. So for example, I'm building a career in disparities research. So for my specific line of work, there's other societies and websites that have a lot of resources. And for example, job opportunities that are not necessarily through a regular clinical hiring process. So Academy Health or the American Society of Preventive Oncology post tons of 
of job postings that are more through School of Public Health or FBIOSTATS department, health policy related, that really align with a career that, for example, I want to have. And if you can explore opportunities that are either a combined recruitment, split positions between two different departments, really increase your, I think, your value for institutions and a place that may not have the clinical need. Now, if they can share your hire with another department, it may be easier for them to do so. And that's applicable, so I think, to basic scientists and people who have other backgrounds similarly. Thank you, Anna, for sharing that with us. And it's important because, you know, everybody has a different career pathway. Somebody wants to be a, res- a basic science researcher, cancer health disparity researcher, or some people are interested in um, clinical care. And that is linked to my next question. The process may vary depending on the setting. It can be academia, practice, industry, or government opportunities. Jyoti and Mark, you are both in academia, but how do you think the recruitment process varies based on the setting? We will start with Jyoti. I can speak probably most clearly to academic practice. So certainly, you know, I think, well, I, for all of these, position availability is not always uniform. And so certainly, I think during the pandemic, we've seen many institutions sort of cut back or be much more conservative in the number of positions that would be there or get sort of last minute funding. And so I think this idea of really understanding where there are needs is really important in academics. So sort of holes in the program, generally people know that they're going to need a position with 18 to 24 months sort of notice that it takes that long to get approval from Department of Medicine and the provost. And so, you know, it is a long conversation. And so, again, I think in academics, so sort of early contacts, certainly the second year of fellowship, I say start putting feelers out to see what positions will be open there. And then often it is, it's a direct contact. Certainly that we post eventually but often that is very much later in the process, unfortunately, by the time, again, we have sort of all of the institutional approvals that those postings can be put in journals such as JCO or, or New England Journal of Medicine. I think the private practice piece is, a, is also one that's sort of word of mouth, and that usually happens when people know that area well. And so understanding practice patterns in a particular geography, understanding who may be retiring or leaving really offers opportunities, I think, to reach out and find individuals or practices that are growing. Again, you know, sort of the practice models have changed so much from smaller practices to hospital-based practices. And again, I think in these couple of years, actually, it's a lot of opportunity for many of our graduating fellows or people looking for jobs because hospital practices continue to grow in many areas. They're often looking to bring new fellows on. I'll let Mark talk a little bit about industry and academics difference. Yeah, thanks so much, Jyoti. I think I agree with a lot of the comments that you made. And and it does take a long time to hire somebody to recruit somebody for them, especially to perhaps relocate. So it really does help to start the process, just having conversations as early as possible. And sometimes even 
the fellows within our own program at Dana-Farber are doing such great work in their sort of research years. But I, in my own mind, sometimes have a hard time keeping track. If I bump into a fellow in the hallway and we talk, I, I try to remind myself, okay, are they a second year or are they a third year? Or are they doing an extra research year? And it's hard to know exactly when they're, to remember when they're going to be finishing fellowship and starting to look for a faculty position. So I I do think it helps, especially if fellows are spending you know, more time doing research, for example. It really helps to stay connected with a specific disease center or a team of people you know, going to their weekly case conferences or meeting periodically with the division chief or the program director, the disease center leader, for example, just to kind of keep them aware of your goals, your time frame, you know, to say, okay, now I'm in the middle of my second year, but maybe you know, in a year and a half when I graduate, I'll be very you know, interested in staying in this same city for a faculty position. Or I'm actually you know, hoping to move to California you know, with my family, and can you start to make some introductions for me? And, and I think the, the more in advance that people know your general timeline and your goals, I think that can help because we might you know, in any given department say, okay, I think so-and-so might retire, you know, in a year or two. And so that would be a great position that we'll need to fill. And this will work out really well for the timing of when this fellow will be graduating, or, you know, we're looking to expand and grow our volume and we can kind of plan ahead for a really, you know, superb and fantastic fellow that we would love to recruit. So I do think it helps to start early, especially, you know, in the academic setting. I haven't worked in industry, but have had some colleagues go to industry from academic settings, either right out of fellowship or after a few years at academic institutions. So I can't speak personally, but you know, I think it is nice that there are so many different opportunities to work in different settings, you know, after having such you know great training in oncology. And so I think there again, it does help to try to talk to people to you know get those sort of introductions ask your mentor if you are interested in industry positions to you know start have people help introduce you to different folks in industry there are many different industry type positions some more on uh, translational studies some more clinical trial teams for example so depending on what you see yourself doing or what you're interested in it helps to you know have somebody to help guide you along the way to make those introductions. That is also, you know, I think a little bit of a bigger unknown, just because you know most people by the time they're finishing fellowship haven't worked in industry. So I think there it helps to really try to ask questions about what you would be doing kind of day to day and and talking to people who have made that leap from or that transition from academia to industry to sort of understand how things are similar or how things are different. But it is nice to have those chances and opportunities. Thank you, Mark, for sharing that with us. Now we're gonna just talk about the process. What is uh, you know what entitles? So, you know, after the position is posted, what happens, Mark? What is the next step? What you know, or listeners, not only the ones that are looking for a job, but the ones that are trying to recruit talent. What is next after that online post goes and we retweet it in social media? <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I think as I was, you know, mentioning earlier, ideally the process even starts a bit earlier, you know, before something is posted. And this is one of the, you know, unfortunate pieces about the pandemic and not having as many in-person 
face-to-face meetings or conferences, because that those are also great opportunities to network, to get introduced to people, to go up to somebody after a talk or after a conference and let them know who you are and that you're interested in a faculty position and do they have any openings or spots coming up. So, you know, hopefully as meetings are starting to come back in person this year, in the coming months that, you know, fellows can avail themselves of those kinds of opportunities to hear more about the process and the prospects um, at different institutions. And, And short of that, I think for now, I think it can help even just to ask your mentor, you know, even if you can't get to a, a meeting in person, ask them to introduce you to different people at institutions that you would really love to consider for a future faculty position. And then, you know, I think if you sort of set that groundwork up and if you kind of know, okay, you know, there'll be a position in Texas that, you know, I've already been talking to people there. And, and so once it's posted, they might you know, have already heard of you, they might anticipate that you'll apply. And I think that can help sort of set a little bit of the the groundwork in advance. Once a position is posted, you know, there's probably different processes at, at every institution, but, you know, often there's a point of contact, you'll prepare a cover letter, you'll prepare your CV. And the cover letter is really a chance to explain, you know, what it is that you're looking for, what kind of career do you envision for yourself are you interested in a specific field of health services research, disparities research, clinical trials, translational research, or uh, clinical care? And that helps sort of put into context to the, the CV and, and give the institution a sense of what your long-term goals are. And then you know, from there, typically each institution forms a committee. The committee at many places you know, has to go through training with regards to unconscious bias awareness and to try to identify, you know, the um, applicants who are really, really meet all of the qualifications that they're looking for, or, you know, some institutions are looking for, you know, something very specific, like we need somebody, for example, to lead and take care of uh, small cell lung cancer, but, you know, this applicant doesn't have an interest or this, you know, person has expressed a sort of very specific niche of interest. And so, other institutions are not so specific and they say, well, you know, we just want to put this post out there and see who applies and really get the best person and really try to foster whatever interests there are and see if we can make it work. So it's a little bit different from one place to the next as to how narrow or broad a position that they're, the division is, is perhaps looking to fill. But from there, I think, you know, the applicant would be invited to, you know, after review of their CV and cover letter, they'd be invited to meet with uh, people on the selection committee. They're typically invited to give a job talk or a seminar as kind of a first step. And then the committee, after reviewing several of the applicants, after interviews and listening to the seminar, really decides who might be kind of at the top of their list for moving to the next steps. Thank you, Mark. And I love this conversation because the three of you are allowing me to have an easy segue into each question. So the next question is this job talk. I remember having anxiety about this job talk. And last time I gave a job talk, I was recovering for COVID-19. So it was quite the experience. (laughs) So Jyoti, how important is this job talk? And what were your recommendations for our listeners that it is important to include in this infamous job talk? The infamous job talk. Well, hopefully it is an opportunity to really showcase what you've been doing. 
And so the job talk is absolutely important, again, to really demonstrate the excitement that you bring about the work that you're doing. Generally, it's attended broadly across the division and maybe with collaborators in other divisions of your thoracic oncologist, hopefully would have some pathologists and pulmonologists and radiation oncologists that you'd be working with, but generally it's the division itself. And I think that as a fellow, you start sort of crafting your job talk early. Again, maybe even in your second year, we give fellows a lot of opportunities at, at many institutions to present you know, 15-minute talks, 30-minute talks throughout their training, and to start really thinking about what story can you tell about the projects that you've been involved with. And so in your second year, you think about sort of the review papers you're doing, the prospective studies that you're collecting, the data that you're collaborating with, and maybe older studies that you're writing up. And to weave that into, generally, it's a 40-minute talk, sometimes shorter, but maybe a 40-minute talk with maybe three components in it about some background introducing what you're excited about, some of the work that you've been involved in. And then, you know, it's early in your fellowship. And so it's unlikely that you'll have a lot of data or results yet, but really how that may segue into future trials. So I think it's essentially accounting for what you've done, but also giving a real path forward about what you imagine yourself to be in that job. So I I think it's a great opportunity. Hopefully it's not too scary, but it really gives an opportunity to show your personality, to show what you care about and the great work that you've already been doing. Thank you, Jati. And Anna, any comments about this job talk? Yes, I agree with everything that's been said. I would add that I think it's important, one, to practice, to get feedback from mentors, from colleagues and people who really can understand, you know, the work that you're doing and what story you're trying to sell. Because at the end of the day, this job talk really is, it is a big deal. It is a something that will either get you to the next step in the job application process or in reality, um, you know, if you don't sell yourself appropriately the interest may may die down with a specific institution. So I would say getting feedback is really important to make sure that you are selling the story of what you want to achieve as clearly and as possible and concise and something that makes sense with your background and where you want to go. And the other part is because during that practice and feedback session, at least for many women and as a minority, you'll hear that you need to sell yourself. And it's something that doesn't come naturally for many of us. People think, you know, I work hard and the work that I put in will show. But if you don't highlight your roles on the projects or what things you've been able to do throughout that job talk, then it just seems like you're presenting work from somebody else. And really through this process, I think being able to disseminate your work and articulate clearly what you've done and what you're capable of doing and where you want to go is really, really important. Thank you for sharing that. We also, and I think to the job talks I have listened and attended, I think telling a story about your journey and what, you know, motivates you to do the work you want to do, regardless of where you go. I think it always catches the, the attendees attention. Anna, like we say before, you are in the middle of this. 
And there are a lot of exchanges or emails during this process. Some of these emails are like, well, unfortunately, at this time, we don't have that position or we are set uncertain if the position will open. How have you dealt with this and what are your recommendations? That's a, a tough thing. I think that I kept a list of people that I had been emailing and institutions and what their responses were. As it was brought up earlier, because the process is so nebulous, every institution you know, has a completely different timeline depending on when they get budget, when is the job posted, if they made an offer and somebody declined it, and now there may be a new position that is open. So I think that if you're really interested in a specific place, going back through that list and, and circling back with people in a couple months later to continue to express interest is important and what will help. And through all of the email exchanges, no matter what, being kind and grateful, at the end of the day, these are really this process gets you to know people and introduce yourself and your work. And hopefully when we go back to conferences, you'll have an, an, an email to reference to while introducing yourself and getting to meet people. Like right now, I emailed everyone on this call, on this podcast about my job process, but actually have not met many of you in person, but feel like already there's some relationships in, in, that have started to build, which hopefully will be, you know, as, as we grow in the future and I become a thoracic oncologist, future collaborations. Thank you, Anna. So job was posted, job talk was given, and then an offer was sent to the applicant. And this is a very important part of the job, particularly for women and minorities, because they're less likely to negotiate. One of my advisors, when I was looking for my first job, told me, particularly my advisor is Dr. Silver from Harvard Medical School. She told me everything can be negotiated. And this question is to Jyoti and Mark. How can you negotiate without burning bridges? Mark? This is a good question. And... um... You know, not something that we learn to do, you know, up until this point. Again, everything is very regimented for a medical school residency fellowship. You know, there's very little negotiation or or wiggle room. And as you said, NJ, you know, it's important not to burn bridges, as you said, you know, throughout this whole process, you know, even though, you know, I'm in thoracic oncology and it's a big field, it's also a small world. And that's a good thing. You know, you get to know colleagues very well over the years and get to hear about, you know, the best and the brightest fellows that are coming up and looking for faculty positions. So, you know, I think what's been great is that I've met wonderful fellows along the way who were interested in applying for faculty positions and whether we didn't have a position at the time or whether they, you know, chose somewhere else, it does help to establish those relationships and to see them at future meetings and you know, through some of those interactions, we've been able to collaborate on on a number of projects. So it's a small world. So it does help to maintain all good relationships throughout the process. And, you know, everybody knows there's many factors that go into somebody's decision as to where to go for a faculty position. So I think maintaining, you know, professional and, and collegial communication and interactions and discussions all along the way is helpful. That's, you know, good general general advice for academic medicine. In terms of negotiation, you know, I think what's been better in recent years is, you know, appropriately, there's been a push for equity and among salaries and among 
offers. And I think that is helpful, you know, just so that you don't wind up hearing that somebody's salary is more than somebody else at the same position. So there are some things that aren't negotiable at certain institutions, and that could be, you know, the salary, that could be the title in terms of a kind of academic appointment. But there are certain things that can be negotiated and, and discussed. And so it is important to, you know, talk through with some of the current faculty members there or other mentors and colleagues and, you know, to try to understand a better sense of, well, what is the level of clinical support or, or administrative support? Will I have an administrative assistant that's dedicated to me? Will there be a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant that I can work with in clinic and share patients care with? or not, will I have you know, a specific title or will I be charged with a kind of leadership role right off the bat? Are there research assistants that I can uh, have to work with or have access to help with some projects, getting them off the ground? Are there any startup opportunities or startup packages for funding for um, assistants, uh, statisticians, again, researchers? So I think there are a lot of things that can be discussed you know, at some places, the salary maybe can be negotiated, or if not the salary, maybe the percent effort that you're spending in terms of clinical care, where perhaps they can protect your salary for three years, where that would give you time, you know, to see patients in terms of negotiating, whether that's going to be, you know, two full days a week or, you know, five sessions, six sessions, or three sessions, for example, where the rest of your time will be spent on research. Those are the kind of things that could be uh, negotiated perhaps, but perhaps, you know, the division would say, you know, well, then after those three years, you know, we would ask that if you can provide some of your own research uh, grant support, that would enable you to, you know, continue sort of protecting your time otherwise. So there are a lot of things that can be discussed and so I think it does help to talk with current faculty members or, you know, at different institutions as well as at the institution that you're looking at uh, to try to understand what are the important questions to be asking during those discussions. And when along those lines, Jyoti, what is the best way to negotiate? Email, phone call? That's a common question that I get for many fellows. So... I think all of those points are really great. You know, I would say proceed with transparency and honesty. You know, it's probably the best way to proceed in life and respect. And so, you know, I think many of these should probably happen with conversations. It's really hard to gauge tone on email and to sort of see sort of unwritten agreements or disagreements with what you're asking. And so I'd encourage, you know, certainly I think most people, most packages are more similar than they are dissimilar in academic medicine. And most places cover two to three years when you start clinical services is pretty uniform. You know, now again, with real efforts at equity and transparency, I think we've come a long way. So in general, I think packages are closer than they've ever been before. Institutions are leaner in many ways than they've ever been before. But the areas in which you can ask are ones that, you know, in I which think are the areas in which I think you can ask are ones that really support the value add you're going to give to the academic center. So that's the research assistance, the core services for your research. 
obviously time to do your research. Those are the ones in which you can ask. And I think conversation makes the is the most straightforward. Email, you can sort of go back and forth about specific terms, but I would encourage conversations by phone or in person about sort of big picture. How is this going to help me get to what I need to do to be successful in the institution I'm coming to? Well, we are about to run out of time. My last question would be, what is the best way to communicate with your institution about your departure? How, you know, especially when it comes to patient care and research transitions. Mark, do you have any recommendations here? What is the best way to say goodbye? (laughs) That's tough. You know, I think we form such uh, strong relationships and and hopefully very positive interactions along the way. So it is hard to say goodbye. I think um, it helps to, you know, do it, you know, with as much notice as possible, especially if you are caring for patients, especially if you have certain uh, projects that are in the midst of, of completion to try to identify, you know, what are things that you will try to complete before your departure or what are things that you'll pass on, but maybe collaborate on in the future. So I think, you know, as, as um, far in advance as possible, just so that the institution can kind of prepare accordingly or, or your mentor can prepare, your research team can get a sense of your time frame. I think that is helpful. And then I think doing it, you know, very again positively and and, and collegially is um, is always a, a good uh, good general tip. And to say, you know, I've decided to go to this other institution for personal reasons, or you know, there was a specific niche or area that was really exciting to me to go there, and and that's why I you know chose that place again. You know, I think everybody understands that there are many forces at play to making a decision as to where to go for faculty position. And most everyone will be very understanding. You know, sometimes people will feel hurt if you if you choose to go elsewhere rather than staying at a current institution. But those are generally, you know, good feelings that they'll they'll miss you and and you know wished to retain such a you know strong candidate. But everybody of course understands and you know you'll run into the, your old mentors, your new colleagues, you know, again and again at future meetings, conference calls, et cetera. So I think you'll continue to have those good relationships, even if you have to leave one institution to go to another. Thank you, Mark. And this is my last question as we are about to end. To each one of you, what is one recommendation you would give yourself or anybody about finding your first job? I will start with Anna, followed by Jyoti, and then Mark. One recommendation I would give myself I think to try somehow to be slightly less stressed about it, um, I think that it has honestly, it, as Mark was just talking, I was thinking of, I haven't made any decision yet. And all of this feels like you're dating multiple people at the same time, trying to figure out which one you're going to marry and have this impending doom of you're going to break somebody else's heart. And all of that feels it's added pressure that is unnecessary. Like it's a process in which we, everybody goes through, but to a certain degree for unknown reasons, I have that anxiety. So I think that if I, if I could go back in time, that is one thing to try to be more conscious about throughout it. I think that's great. Actually, you know, it's to, to approach it, I think 
as with an open heart and an open mind. I think most people that are in academic medicine want to see everyone else around them succeed as well. And so to believe or, you know, that, that people are also acting in, in your interest and, and to take advice. I think that was, I had internalized so much at the time of the stress of making just the right decision when probably most decisions I would have made would have been the right decision. You know, I think we, we turn out pretty well in the long run. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think um, trying to take out some of the stress, I, I think everything will work out, you know, really well in, in um, the vast majority of cases. I think the one thing I might say is for fellows to try to start a little bit earlier than you than you might otherwise think by talking to people, setting up meetings, networking, which is a skill. It's not something that you know comes naturally to, to all of us, but um, just try to introduce yourself to people at meetings, or um, if there are virtual meetings, you know, set up some time to talk over Zoom or otherwise, just to kind of get to know people and um, get them to know you and, and your timelines and your goals. So I think that would be one piece to, you know, try to set up time to talk. And you know, the faculty members love talking with trainees and fellows about careers and future and, and giving advice. So I think don't hesitate to reach out. I think we, you know. Vast uh, majority of us love mentoring trainees and, and helping them through this experience. Thank you for sharing that. And I think my recommendation would be: you never know. I wasn't looking for a job when <laughs> my current job came around. It all came via email from Mark. So the opportunities would come and go, and it's good to grab them when they go. So it was my pleasure to share this space with you. I would like to thank Mark, Jyoti, and Anna for the time and recommendations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always great to share another episode with friends and colleagues. So thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. And I hope you will tune in regularly and our recommendations will help we Anna's recommendation or try to decrease the anxiety around the job search. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org and our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 